Welcome to my podcast, my dad podcast. This is the 1787 Project, the podcast version of the lectures for my socially distanced class on the U.S. Constitution at the University of Missouri. I'm your professor and host, Justin Dyer. Back in February, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act with a 224 to 206 vote. The act would amend key aspects of federal law to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity in public accommodations, public education, housing, employment, access to credit, and in selection for federal jury service. And it also contains a specific provision that says that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993, quote, shall not provide a claim concerning or a defense to a claim under a covered title or provide a basis for challenging the application or enforcement of a covered title, essentially preventing RIFRA from applying to federal anti-discrimination law. And that act, RIFRA, you'll remember, says that government may substantially burden someone's free exercise of religion only if the government shows that it's pursuing a compelling interest in the least restrictive way. If the government can further its compelling interest in a different way, doesn't substantially burden someone's exercise of religion, then they should do that. And that might involve having a judge grant the religious objector relief in the form of an exemption from an otherwise generally applicable statute or policy. But that's a self-imposed rule for the federal government. They imposed that limitation on themselves by passing the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And according to Justice Scalia's majority opinion in Oregon v. Smith, the First Amendment's Free Exercise Clause doesn't require the government to provide exemptions from rules of general applicability that aren't aimed at or targeted at religion. So if Congress says that RIFRA doesn't apply to anti-discrimination law and the Equality Act, then we're back at the reasoning in Smith. No exemptions. The Equality Act hasn't passed the Senate, though. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act is still good law here and in other areas of federal law, too. That's why an Apache religious leader named Robert Soto was granted an exemption from the federal law that makes the possession of eagle feathers illegal. Soto uses eagle feathers in the headdress he wears during religious worship, and he won his case under RIFRA. We have other cases like it. Members of the Sikh faith have been granted exemptions to carry a small blunt knife called a kirpan that members of the faith carry as a symbol of justice. Muslims have been granted exemptions to grow beards while serving in the armed forces. Under related law, inmates in federal prisons have sought exemptions to policies with respect to holidays, food, dress, and reading materials. There are a handful of ongoing cases about the effect of public health orders during the pandemic that prohibit religious gatherings, even while allowing gatherings at liquor stores and Walmart and all sorts of other places. The list of these kinds of cases goes on and on because there are tons of opportunities for conflict between religious practices and generally applicable laws in our highly regulated society. The most high-profile example of this that we have in recent years came in the case of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby in 2014. It involved the contraception mandate from the Affordable Care Act that was passed back in 2010. So the first question about that case, what is the contraception mandate exactly? 
that was part of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, and it required specific health plans to provide, quote, preventative care and screenings to women without any cost-sharing requirements. And then the law, the actual statute passed by Congress, delegated power to the Health Resources and Services Administration, which itself is a sub-agency of the Department of Health and Human Services, to provide what it called comprehensive guidelines for what would be included under that category. That sub-agency then created this administrative rule, and the rule said that employers must provide coverage for all contraceptive methods approved by the FDA, including four that could work as abortifacient drugs. The administrative rule also provided accommodations for religious organizations that objected to providing contraception on religious grounds. The insurance issuer could exclude contraceptive coverage from the employer's plan, and then instead, contraceptive coverage could be provided directly to the employees and paid for directly so that the religious organization was not involved in the provision of contraception. It didn't apply, though, that accommodation to for-profit organizations that weren't explicitly religious organizations like Hobby Lobby stores. But they nonetheless had a religious liberty claim here. They said that providing contraceptive coverage in their health plans for their employees implicated them in something that violated their religious beliefs. It required them to do something they thought they were not allowed to do based on their religion. The law, they said, asked them to do something they regarded as gravely sinful, and it attached a large financial penalty to noncompliance. And so the next question we had, how does this case fare with respect to the test laid out by the Religious Freedom Restoration Act? What implications does it have for other related issues? Listen here to the attorney representing Hobby Lobby field questions about this during oral arguments. When a federal government agency compelled employers to provide something as religiously sensitive as contraception, it knew that free exercise and RIFRA claims would soon follow. In particular, the agency itself provided exemptions and accommodations for the religious exercise of a subset. Is your claim limited to sensitive materials like contraceptives, or does it include um, items like blood transfusion, vaccines, for some religions, products made of pork. Is any claim under your theory that has a religious basis? Could an employer preclude the use of those items as well? Well, Justice Sotomayor, the first step in the analysis would be to ask whether or not there's a substantial burden on religious exercise. I do think this case is, in a sense, easier than most of the examples that you've brought up, because here's one where it's so religiously sensitive, so fraught with religious controversy, that the agency itself provides a certain number of exemptions and accommodations. So that's one way, I think, that the, you'd address the first step of the question. Well, could, I mean, just take one of the things that Justice Sotomayor asked about, which is vaccinations because there are many people who have religious objections to vaccinations. So suppose an employer does and, and um, uh, refuses to fund uh, or wants not to fund uh, vaccinations for her employees. What, what happens then? Well, if we assume we get past the substantial burden step of the analysis, then the next step of the analysis is the compelling interest and least restrictive alternatives analysis. And every case would have to be analyzed on its own. I do think in the context of vaccinations, the government may have a stronger compelling interest than it does in this context because there are notions of herd immunity and the like that give the government a particularly compelling interest in trying to maximize the number of — Blood transfusions? 
the, the blood transfusions, again, each one of these cases, I think, would have to be evaluated on its own and apply the compelling interest, least restrictive alternative test, and the substantial so really part of the really, every test. medical treatment, and Justice Sotomayor is quite right, that there are quite a number of medical treatments that different religious groups subject to. So one religious group could opt out of this, and another religious group could opt out of that, and everything would be piecemeal, and nothing would be uniform. Well, well Justice Kagan, nothing could be clearer than when Congress passed RIFRA. Congress made a judgment that RIFRA was going to apply to all manner of federal statutes. And I think what well, Congress — Well, Mr. Comera, it's — maybe it seemed clear then, but since RIFRA, just as before RIFRA, Congress has continued to write into federal legislation specific religious exemptions for some, but not everybody, for individuals sometimes religious institutions. So if it was all that clear that RIFRA took care of it all, why did Congress continue after RIFRA to pass these laws focusing the exemption on an individual religious institution? Well, those, as I take your argument, all of those laws, and there are more than half a dozen, were unnecessary. Once Riffert was on the books, Congress didn't have to do that anymore. Well, Justice Ginsburg, I'm not sure that they were all unnecessary. And, of course, in a variety of contexts, Congress may proceed on a belt and suspenders matters. So I think there's really two different questions. One is, when, was, when Congress passed Riffert, was Riffert just done with creating other exemptions? And I think the answer to that is no. But I think the question that Justice Kagan's question brought up is, was Congress evident, and did Congress specifically consider whether RIFRA would apply across the board to all the provisions of, the, of, of 18 U.S.C., or uh, rather all the provisions of the United States Code? And Congress could not have been clear that it was passing a statute that it wanted to apply to all pre-existing statutes and to all subsequent statutes unless Congress specifically provided otherwise. You were beginning um, by giving us a, a framework for your argument. Uh, do I think of this as a statutory case? Of course, the First Amendment is uh, is on the stage at some point here. Um, but uh, I take it you can prevail just on the question of statutory interpretation. And if that is so, are there any statutory rules that uh, work in your favor? That is to say, avoiding a constitutional question? Or, or well, how, how do we think about this case? Primarily, is a statutory case. I — obviously, one of my clients has before you right now a free exercise claim, and my other client has a free exercise claim that's live in the lower courts. So those issues are preserved. But I think, as your question points out, this Court really, first and foremost, can decide this on the basis of the federal statute. And the Ash That was a pretty technical discussion in some ways, but the point was that this was not primarily being argued about as a constitutional issue but rather was a question of statutory law about how the court should interpret and apply the Religious Freedom Restoration Act to the facts of this case. And what the court ultimately did in a 5-4 to decision was decide with Hobby Lobby. And in an opinion written by Justice Alito, the court said that the government had not pursued its compelling interest in the least restrictive way. Listen here. So we come to the final question. Can the government's interest be achieved by any means that imposes a lesser burden on religious liberty. And we find that the HHS mandate cannot meet the least restrictive means test. As mentioned earlier, HHS has already devised 
and implemented a system that seeks to respect the religious liberty of religious nonprofit corporations while ensuring that the employees of these entities have precisely the same access to all FDA-approved contraceptives as do employees of companies whose owners have no religious objections. And according to HHS, this system imposes no net economic burden on the insurance companies that are required to provide the coverage. Although HHS has made this system available to religious nonprofits, HHS has provided no reason why the same system cannot be made available when the owners of for-profit corporations have similar religious objections. And we therefore conclude that this system constitutes an alternative that achieves all of the government's aims while providing greater respect for religious liberty. And under RIFRA, that conclusion means that the enforcement of the HHS contraceptive mandate against closely held corporations is unlawful. That decision was pretty limited and hemmed in in all sorts of ways, but it did point toward the kinds of analogous conflicts between religious exercise and public policy throughout federal law that we are likely to see and have seen since then. It's a conflict that in our time shows no sign of abating. 